Welcome to Refresh, a podcast designed to revive, recharge, and renew your faith and give you the tools to follow Jesus. Refresh comes to you from the Salvation Army in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We meet in person every Sunday at 1030 a.m. or online on Facebook and YouTube at Sal Army Gwinnett. We are excited that you have joined us this week and pray that God will bring his word to life. And now for our speaker. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Had he lived to see it, I'm convinced that Charles Dickens would have echoed the same words he used at the beginning of one of his greatest works. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. The year was 1929, and in many ways, it was wonderful. Popular culture was flowering. Entertainment had become big business. The first Academy Awards were held at the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood. America was growing smaller. During that year of 1929, more roads were laid for those new automobiles than had ever been laid before. And sports was very big in the United States. Georgia Tech won the Rose Bowl that year. But it was also the worst of times. After a decline over 10 years in agriculture, millions of families that had farmed for generations found themselves unemployed. The stock market reached its height on September the 3rd, reaching 371. But it began a slow decline. And during three terrible days in October, it plummeted. The stock market would not see that high of 371 again until 1954. Marriages started to become less frequent. The percentage of people becoming married declined precipitously in 1929. And in the Salvation Army itself, the year was one of internal tension and strife as Bramwell Booth was replaced as general by the results of the first high council, placing General Edward Higgins in charge of the Salvation Army's international ministry. Yes, indeed, it was the best of times and the worst of times. In the midst of it all, however, there was a rock-solid faith and a rock-solid confidence in the future of the ministry of the Salvation Army because of a rock-solid faith and confidence in the power of God's Word and in the power of the gospel itself. 
There's no better illustration of that than to look at what salvationists in 1929 would think characterized the Salvation Army in 2029. This was their prediction. In 2029, the illustrator in the International War Cry said that a Salvation Army officer would stand in front of television screens and communicate with the Salvation Army around the world, in Africa, in China, in Japan, in South America. This picture, done 93 years ago, illustrates the fact that even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of trends going this way and that, there was a confidence that not only was there a future, but that the Salvation Army would take advantage of all of it in order to spread the gospel. I'm sorry to report to you today, however, friends, that to my knowledge, the Salvation Army holds no shares of stock in Zoom. <laughs> the story of Philip is an illustration of that rock-solid confidence in the future because of our rock-solid confidence in the power of God himself. Philip, an apostle, is told by an angel to go down to a road. Notice the scripture does not say where he's going. It doesn't seem to matter. We know it's the road that runs from Jerusalem down through the desert to Gaza, but the angel doesn't specify for Philip what he's to do or how he's to get there. Just go down to the road. And while he's on the road, he encounters a man who in many ways symbolizes the world in which you and I live. He's a man who has control of, though not ownership of, a tremendous amount of wealth. He's a eunuch. He cannot replicate himself. He will be the end of his line. So in many ways, there's no reason for him to look to a future. The scripture tells us that he's been to Jerusalem to worship, and yet on his way back from Jerusalem, he's reading the scriptures trying to figure out what's going on. His heart is yearning. His heart wants to have answers. His mind can't quite understand it all. But the angel of the Lord has placed Philip on his way. And the angel then says to Philip, as Philip sees this man at a distance, go near that chariot. Philip does so. And he hears that confusion. He hears that yearning as the eunuch reads from the book of Isaiah. And he has the courage to say, do you understand what you're hearing and what you're reading? I have no idea. How similar that is to the world in which we live. We see all around us the evidence of God's goodness and grace. And yet, in many ways, the world can't understand it, they're not sure about it, they need someone to help explain the good news of Jesus Christ.
That vision of the future was made possible by men and women who knew that the power of God could transcend time and place and distance. You and I must have that same confidence because in the ensuing 93 years, nothing has changed about His Word. We believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by inspiration of God and that they only constitute the divine rule of Christian faith and practice. The only question is, are you and I ready to share it? Are we? Are we ready to share this good news that it brings us here today, that has transformed our lives, that has given us meaning and purpose and understanding and joy and fulfillment and love, all the fruits of the Spirit, are we willing to climb up into the chariot and to share it? There are many ways that people avoid doing just that. One is that they say, well, the times have changed. Things are different now. Now we live in a world in which religion is privatized. And after all, society is very polarized. We're only going to get ourselves into trouble if we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Things are different today. Friends, I submit to you that they are not because the human heart and its need for Jesus Christ has not changed one whit. The great preacher Tim Keller talks about what happens when a Christian decides to share Jesus Christ with someone else. He says that in the midst of that relationship, there will come a moment when that person will look at the Christian and say, uh, wait a minute here, uh, what are you trying to do? Well says the Christian. I'm trying to evangelize you. Yeah, you mean you're trying to convert me? Well, yes, that's precisely right. How dare you do that, many will say in response. How awful, how narrow. I believe that everyone should simply stick to their own beliefs, that they should not interfere with anyone else. My understanding is, is that that's the best way for the world to operate. The response of the Christian is to gently say, well, that would be your attempt to evangelize me, to adopt your understanding of truth. I happen to think that my understanding of truth is better, and I simply want to share it with you. The point is this. Narrowness is not found in the content of an exclusive truth claim. All exclusive truth claims are valid in the sense that we accept the opportunity for people to share them. But it does not mean that one is equivalent to the other, that one is truer than the other. You and I as Christians, if this is what we believe, if this is the truth that we proclaim, is the one that we should be willing to share. There are other reasons that people will say that I really can't share the gospel with anyone else. A common one is, I don't know how. 
After all, we live in the age of experts. They'll tell us on the television exactly what we should think about this because we've got degrees. We've got letters after our name. And they are the criteria by which we judge the validity of anything that anyone will say. And because that person with those degrees has said, this is what I must believe, well then clearly, that is what I must believe. Friends, that is not how the gospel works. The gospel is not about expertise. The gospel is about knowing Jesus Christ and sharing that relationship with someone else. And there are lots of different ways to do it. You might decide to adopt the method of Matthew, who in Matthew 9 brings together all of his friends so that, he, so that they can meet Jesus. You might decide that you're going to serve in the name of Christ, much as Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, did in Acts 9. She was known for her service. You might decide simply to tell your story, as the blind man did in John 9, after he had been healed, they asked him, who has made it possible for you to see again? I don't know, but he did a great job. <laughs> you might decide that you're going to reason, as Paul did in the Areopagus in Acts 19. Or you might simply decide that you're going to adopt the direct approach of Peter in Acts 2 and simply stand up and tell the truth about who this Jesus is and why I love him so. In the gospel, it's not about expertise. It's about sharing from our hearts and from our minds what we know. And all of us have that capability. Sharing the truth of Jesus Christ, if we believe it, will not, as the scripture tells us, ever return void. There is, of course, one objection to evangelization, which lurks in the back of almost everyone's mind. After we get over this idea that truth is relative, which it is not, once we get over this idea that we can we don't have the expertise or the ability, which we all do. There is that nagging sense that we will be rejected. That people will say no to the gospel. Well, friends, there's no getting around that. That will happen. You and I follow a savior who was rejected. It was true for him. It was true for the apostles who followed him. What makes us think it's going to be any difference from us, for us? Of course, there will be instances of rejection. Of course, people may not accept the message. But friends, there will be those moments when the people with whom we speak are ready to hear the message. And they will hear it. And they will receive it. And they will accept it. And it is in that moment the gospel begins to grow. In 1915, Brigadier John Pershing commanded a cavalry regiment based at the Presidio in San Francisco. 
He was assigned with his regiment to go down to the Texas border to find Pancho Villa. While he was away, there was a terrible fire in his quarters in San Francisco. That fire killed his wife and four daughters. Only his son was left. When he returned from the border and saw the devastation of what once had been his home, he said, they had no chance. The Salvation Army officer in San Francisco was Colonel Henry Lee. We know that Colonel Lee wrote a note of condolence to General Pershing. We don't know exactly what he said. But in our archives at National Headquarters, we have Pershing's response, in which he says, I cannot tell you how much it has meant to me to know that you understand and that you have been praying for me. Please thank everyone at the Salvation Army for their love and prayers. Two years later, Pershing was designated to lead the American Expeditionary Force in World War I in France. He contacted the Salvation Army. He knew that his boys on the front line would need the same sort of support and love and care that he had received when no one was watching. And that was the genesis of the story we heard from Captain Ryerson earlier today. The Salvationists went. They made the donuts. The soldiers loved them so much, they began to call themselves the Doughboys. Returning from France, they told their wives and their mothers and their girlfriends about these delicious little donuts. Though I must tell you, friends, I have eaten donuts from the original recipe, and they are nothing to write home about. <laughs> but to them, it was home. To them, it was love. To them, it was care. And that popularized the donut and identified the Salvation Army as a source of love. I was raised to believe that where the Salvation Army goes, so goes the gospel. Because of that one officer's letter, a relationship was created with the American public that has given us countless millions of opportunities to share Jesus Christ with someone in need. And it still can happen today if we have the confidence and the faith and the vision to see what God can do in the future with his people. Friends, this is a donut moment when we take the little we have and we share it freely with someone else. You might know the old story of the veterinarian who is driving down the road one day and he sees by the side of the road a dog 
he pulls over, goes back and sees that the dog has been injured. So he gathers the dog up, puts it in his car, and drives down the road to his clinic. At the clinic, he brings in the dog and gently lays it on the table and ministers to its wounds, washing and then cleansing and then bandaging. And after he has finished the procedure, he picks up the dog in order to take it to another room to rest. But at that moment, the dog leaps out of his arms, runs out the back door of the clinic and down the road. And the veterinarian thinks to himself, what an ungrateful little dog. <laughs> he forgets all about it until the next day when he hears on that back door a scratching. And he opens it up. And there before him is that hurt little dog with another hurt little dog. Christianity is about one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. The only question, friends, is if you have sensed that transformation that God brought into your heart when you accepted Jesus Christ, if you have an ongoing relationship with him, are you willing are you ready to climb up into the chariot and to tell a confused, hurting, but yearning world the good news of Jesus Christ? It has always been based on the scripture where our faith and our confidence is found. It should be ours this day. Thank you for listening to Refresh. Be sure to hit subscribe and like us on Facebook and YouTube to never miss an episode. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with your friends and family. We pray that you will be refreshed and ready to take on your week. See you next time. God bless.